This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part two of a five-part series on oil, gas, and energy law. This series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Vanak podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode, we'll take a deeper dive into the process by which minerals are conveyed or reserved through deeds, assignments, wills, and other conveyance instruments. The episode will then shift to address some of the many issues that can arise between parties to those conveyance instruments and how best to deal with these issues, either at the front end, or if you have to, the back end. Today I'll be joined by my partner in the Carnes City office, Elizabeth Kopeski. Elizabeth is a native of South Texas growing up near the small town of Poth. Elizabeth is a graduate of St. Mary's Law School where she was an academic superstar. Since joining Langley Benack in 2013, Elizabeth has established herself as one of the preeminent authorities on deed interpretation law and has become the firm's go-to person on appellate issues relating to the construction and interpretation of legal documents such as deeds or mineral assignments. In addition, she's a devoted mother to her two dogs, which remain the only thing existing on this earth which are allowed to take her attention away from her legal practice. So with that, please join me in welcoming to the podcast my partner Langley Benack and someone who will undoubtedly one day become my boss, Elizabeth Kopeski. Elizabeth, hello. Hi, Clinton. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction. You're very welcome, and I can tell by the, the red face, you love the <laughs> praise. You, you, you yearn for the spotlight, uh, and so I think it's pretty clear that uh, I had a good time embarrassing you there. So I uh, appreciate you very much for being on today. Yes, thank you. So in episode one, and I know you didn't participate in it, but to give you a brief uh, refresher or tell you kind of a little bit about it, episode one served as kind of a you know, broad overview of the you know, different issues that we typically encounter uh, in our oil, gas, and energy practice at Langley Benack. Today, I want to take a deeper dive into exactly how someone goes about either conveying or reserving a mineral interest and then, you know, how that can go wrong. And so let's get, you know, r- real 30,000 foot view first, and then we can kind of focus in on different issues. Briefly tell our audience, you know, what is a mineral reservation? Mineral reservations uh, typically follow the granting clause in a deed and are used by grantors to keep specific interests from passing by the general words of grant in a warranty deed. Okay, so, you know, granting clause, what, what is, you know, 
when I've got a deed, you know, where do I find like the granting clause? What is that going to contain? It's typically found at the introduction uh, of the deed, and it'll you know have the words grant, sell, and convey. Okay, it, it's that portion of the deed that you know says we're we're hereby conveying you this property. That's right? correct. And so after after a deed conveys an interest in you know or let's say a, our hypothetical piece of property, Black Acre. So the the deed conveys Black Acre to the grantee, and so then. You state there if there's going to be a reservation clause, it would typically come after uh, after that clause. Now, is it necessary uh, in order to keep some of the minerals? Is it necessary for the grantor to to put in a reservation clause, or or do minerals get reserved implicitly or just on their own? No, in Texas, a warranty deed will pass all of the estate owned by the grantor at the time of the conveyance unless there are reservations or exceptions which reduce the estate conveyed. Okay, so what you're saying is that in order to hold back any minerals, I got to explicitly say that. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, so um, what would a mineral reservation typically look like? You know, what, what sort of language should someone be looking out for just to see if minerals are reserved? Something like save and accept or hereby retain, uh, grantor hereby reserves all of the oil, gas, and other minerals, um, okay. so, something along those lines. So how do, you, how do you go about doing a mineral reservation? Well, first, uh, you, you have to make sure that you reserve the interest at the time of the conveyance. Mm -hmm. And second, you must use clear language uh, because deeds are construed to convey the greatest estate possible and a general warranty deed will convey all of the grantor's interest unless there is language in the instrument that clearly shows an intention to convey a lesser interest. So, you know, in other words, if you're going to make that reservation, you got to make it in the very deed. You can't go back in time or you can't go, you know, after the conveyance is made, I can't go back and say, oh, yeah, and I, I reserved X amount of minerals. That's correct. You know, because at that time, it's already been conveyed out and it's no longer yours to to make that assertion, is that right? Yes. Okay. You know, we talked about it briefly, but you know, talk talk further about this idea that courts don't favor reservations by implication. What, what does that mean, a reservation by implication, and why don't courts favor reservations by implications? To avoid a situation where someone comes in and says that you know they reserved everything, even though the deed clearly conveyed everything. Okay. And so you know. It, the deed's going to convey the greatest estate possible, right? And so, you know, in order to hold anything back, the courts want you to expressly state that. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Can somebody convey or reserve? You know, we talked about this the other day, uh, or in episode one. You know, I brought in I brought in a bundle of sticks, and you're familiar with the you know the uh, the oil and gas bundle of sticks, right? You know, that's something we all learn in law school is you know, mineral interest is, you know, a collection of sticks. Can, can somebody, you know, break apart those sticks or convey a lesser interest or, you know, just one of the sticks? You know, is it possible, you know, to break up or segregate the mineral interest into its component parts when you're conveying or reserving an interest? Yes. Um, any portion of a mineral interest can be conveyed or reserved, and you can reserve or convey different percentages of each attribute of your mineral interest. Um, for example, you can reserve or convey 50% of your bonus, 75% of your royalties, 20% of your executive rights, or any other percentage that you want. 
And you can also convey or reserve those interests for a set period of time, such as 10 years, or you can convey your right to royalty payments in a specific well. So, you know, and one thing I've always, that's always kind of interests me about mineral law is how creative you can get with what you're doing with the minerals. So, you know, what you're saying is that if I owned, you know, let's say hypothetically 100% of the minerals in Black Acre, I could chop those mineral interests up however I want uh, when either I'm conveying them directly to you in just like a mineral conveyance or when I'm holding them back in a reservation in which I'm conveying you, you know, the surface and everything else with it. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And so, um, and I can also reserve those things for a, a term. You know, I could reserve 100% of my minerals for 10 years, 20 years, or, mm-hmm. you know, based on like some condition, you know, for like as long as there's production on the property or something like that. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And so, you know, it's, minerals allow people to get creative uh, in, you know, the types of conveyances that they're making. you agree with that? I do. What should someone watch out for uh, when conveying or reserving a portion of their mental interest? Well, in, in 2015, the Texas Supreme Court reaffirmed that grantors who sign unambiguous deeds are presumed as a matter of law to have immediate knowledge of any material omissions contained in the deed. So that, you know, it, and let's simplify that a little bit. Basically, that says if, if you make a mistake on your deed, you're implied to know about it. Is that right? Correct. And you'll have four years from the date of the deed to, to you know, get it corrected, either do a correction deed or file a lawsuit. Okay. And how do, how do correction deeds work? You know, wh- what is a correction deed and, you know, what exactly, how does one go about getting a correction instrument? You'd have to get the signature of all of the parties to the original conveyance and, um, you know, it'll go back through and it'll recite what the errors are in the in the prior instrument and then contain the corrective language to you know fix that issue. And so let's say that you know today I enter into a deed with you and I, I sell you Black Acre and I see that or I intended to reserve all the minerals in Black Acre but you know I just hired a bad lawyer and they didn't put that in the deed and I convey you that. I've got four years from the date of that deed to either come back to you or to file some sort of suit that we'll talk about later. But, you know, if I'm going to get a correction instrument, if we're just going to do this uh, by agreement without a lawsuit, then both I as the grantor to that original document and you as the grantee to that original document need to sign off on it. Is that right? Yes. And, And that's because me, I, you know, as the grantor, I just can't sign off on it by myself, right? And why would that be? Well, you, as the grantor, you've already conveyed your interest. So if you come back and try and unilaterally reserve an interest that, you know, wasn't part of the original transaction without, you know, joining the grantee in that, um, you know, there'd be chaos. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you can't just, you can't just, you know, convey all of Blackacre and then, you know, three months later just unilaterally say, Oh yeah, by the way, here's a correction instrument. I actually reserved all the interest in Black Acre. Because A, you don't own that property anymore. And B, you know, that just creates chaos in the title records, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, can you briefly describe for the audience, you know, what, what like the deed records or official records are? When we say something is recorded or it's an official, you know, recorded document or something like that, what what do we mean by that? And what's the purpose? 
of recording a deed or recording an assignment uh, in the official records of a particular county. Well, the deed records are, are located in the county clerk's office in, in the county in which the property is located. Um, so the deeds need to be recorded in that county. Uh, and they're maintained and, and there's, they're indexed. And um, so when you're you know, running title, you're, you're going to run grantor's name or grantee's name and, and locate the specific deed, which is, um, you know, a photocopy is contained in those deed records. Okay. And that will, you know, tell whoever's going through those records, here's what was conveyed, here's what was reserved, so that, you know, you can determine what the owner of the property as it currently stands, what he currently owns, right? That's he or correct. she owns. Yes. Um, and so going back to our correction instrument, if I've conveyed you Blackacre, then I no longer own Blackacre, right? And so if I sign a correction deed just on my own, I'm signing a deed on a piece of property I no longer have an interest in, right? And so if somebody's running title and they see two deeds from me for the same piece of property, one reserving uh, minerals and one not, well, that's going to create confusion in title, right? Yes. And so for a correction instrument that makes a material correction, such as like, you know, reserving or conveying minerals, all the parties to that original agreement need to join in it so that everyone, everyone sees that, yeah, there was a mistake, everybody recognizes it's a mistake, and we're willing to correct it, right? And that, that's if you're, you know, you can do it amicably, right, mm -hmm. if you can get the agreement going. What happens if, you know, we're still within that four-year period that I've assigned you Blackacre, but I didn't reserve the minerals, and let's say I come to you and I say, Elizabeth, you know, I, I made a mistake. I, I should have reserved this, you know, here's our real estate contract, you know I should have reserved it, uh, but I failed to do so. And you say, well, that's tough luck, you know, too bad for you, my minerals now. What, what are my options at that point? Well, you, know, you should proceed with filing a deed reformation lawsuit to, um, you know, show the court that there was a, a mistake made in putting the agreement in writing and um, you know, ask the court to correct that that issue. Okay, and so, you know, when when can a uh, when can a party seek reformation of a deed? Typically, when there is a mistake that is made after the agreement is made. So you have an agreement between two parties. Um, that agreement is you'll reserve all of your minerals. Mm -hmm. The deed then does not reserve all of the minerals. There's a, a mistake, a mutual mistake that was made in uh, putting that agreement into writing. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the court looks for when, when deciding on a deed reformation case. So the court needs to find that there was in fact a mistake made between the parties that would reduce it when they were reducing it down to writing, is that correct? Yes. And what sort of evidence would a court look to to determine whether or not there was an actual mistake made? They'd look to, you know, the earnest money contract, mm -hmm. um, any writings between the parties, any, um, you know, anything that evidences the party's agreement and shows that there was an intent to reserve all of the minerals. And kind of getting into the litigation side, you know, what are some of the common issues that we see that lead to litigation? So one of the common issues that we typically see is, is when a, a wealthy family member passes away without leaving clear instructions for their heirs. 
Um, and that, that lack of clear instructions, uh, which would typically be addressed in a last will and testament, leads to heirs fighting over what they believe they are entitled to, um, which is almost always greater <laughs> than what the decedent wanted. Sure. Um, so, you know, kind of focusing in on that. So, you know, we and we've unfortunately seen a lot of this in the recent years that, you know, there's that that initial generation that owns the minerals when they first start producing. And, you know, they you know, they might be a husband and wife. They might be, you know, some brothers and sisters, uh, but they usually have a clear idea of you know, whether it's been reduced to writing or not, they generally have a clear idea of how these minerals should be owned and the royalty split and all that. You know, what we oftentimes see is when it gets to that next generation, uh, when that first generation uh, kind of passes on, and if they don't leave clear instructions, either through, you know, a will or through, uh, you know, if they've put the minerals in like a closely held family corporation or something like that, uh, when they don't leave those clear instructions, you know, that's typically when, you know, these families will, will get into these sorts of fights. And, you know, oftentimes what I've found is they're not really fighting over the minerals. The minerals are like a means to the end. You know, they're, they're really fighting over like Christmas 1986. And, you know, the fact is now they have fighting money uh, because of these mineral interests. And they're going to use it to try to, you know, just chip away at each other. Um, and that's, that's what we've seen some, uh, is that, you know, when, when mom and dad or when, when the uncles don't really set a clear plan on how the property, and, and this is even greater than just minerals, you know, we're talking like surface, we're talking, you know, furniture, uh, things like that. When they don't leave a clear plan in their will or other inheritance documents as to how these minerals are supposed to be owned and managed um, along with other real property assets and just personal property assets that I that I've seen and I know you have as well working with me uh, has been a great source of dispute between family members uh, what's other issues that we've seen rise up with regards to uh, to mineral litigation and particularly like deed interpretation mm -hmm. litigation and stuff like that well, another issue that comes up is, is when a grantor reserves a portion of the minerals in either the property described or in the property conveyed. Because specific rules of construction apply when a grantor owns an undivided mineral interest and reserves a fraction of the minerals under the land in the deed. So if the deed reserves a fraction of the minerals under the land conveyed, then the deed reserves a fraction of the mineral estate actually owned by the grantor and conveyed in the deed. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if the deed reserves a fraction of the minerals under the land described, the deed reserves a fraction of the minerals under the entire physical tract, regardless of the portion of the mineral estate, mineral estate that's actually being conveyed. So let's break that down. So like if a deed is saying, um, you know, I hereby, and, and are we talking about this, this description or conveyance language being in the reservation portion or the, the granting clause? Like, you know, I hereby convey all of my interest mm -hmm. in Black Acre, mm -hmm. then whatever it is that I own in Black Acre, if it's 100%, it's 100%. If mm -hmm. it's less than 100%, then all you're getting is whatever I, whatever I own, right? 
Right, but, but this issue typically comes up in the reservation okay. portion of the deed. So walk us through that. So the, the okay. reservation section would say, you know, I hereby uh, reserve a fraction of the, I, I hereby reserve one-fourth of the minerals in Black Acre. You mm -hmm. know, what would he be reserving or she be reserving in a clause that states something like that? Typically, you'll want to look for whether it's reserving, you know, the interest in the land conveyed mm -hmm. or in the land that is described. Okay. So when you're looking at a situation where it's in the land conveyed, then you're reserving what you actually own, a portion of what you actually own. Mm -hmm. And then if, if you're in the other situation where it's, you know, the land described, then you're reserving a portion of the entire, you know, mineral estate regardless of what you own. Right. So if I own like one half of the minerals in Blackacre mm -hmm. and I reserve one half of my interest in the minerals in Blackacre, then I'm reserving one half of one half. That's right. Because, yes. you know, I start off with one half of the minerals. And so my interest in the minerals is 50%, right? And if I'm reserving one half of my interest Correct. in those minerals, it's 50% times 50%. Mm -hmm. I'm leaving there with 25%. Now, if I own 50% of the minerals in Black Acre and I reserve 50% of the minerals in Black Acre, I'm walking away with 100% of what I own. Correct. Right? And so, you know, this is, it's, it's these little words in these deeds that always make these just huge differences is, is what we've come to find is, you know, the placement of a comma, you know, it's it's these little sorts of things that take this, you know, real precise, you know, the need for a real precise look at the conveyance instruments in order to really be able to advise the client, you know, here's not only what you own, but here's what you're reserving or conveying, you know, in this in this grant, right? Right. And so, you know, if you're if you're reserving a portion of what you're conveying, you know you're reserving out of what you own. Mm -hmm. If you're reserving a portion of the land, right. you know, you're reserving a portion of 100%, right? That's correct. Okay, so another issue that we deal with a lot um, in our deed interpretation work is the difference between a fixed and a floating royalty interest. Is that right? Yes. And so give us, you know, give us kind of, you know, the 30,000 foot views, what, what is a fixed or fractional royalty interest as opposed to what's a, what's a floating or a fraction of royalty interest? So a, a fixed or fractional royalty interest entitles the owner to an absolute fraction of production. So it is not affected by the amount of the landowner's royalty that's set out in an oil and gas lease. On the other hand, a fraction of or floating royalty um, entitles its owner to a share of the landowner's royalty that's obtained under an oil and gas lease. So the value of that royalty interest floats or varies in accordance with the size of the landowner's royalty. You know, going back to just little things, you know, so if a deed says, I hereby reserve 132nd of the production of oil and gas on the property, that is a different reservation than if a deed says, I hereby reserve one-fourth of the usual one-eighth royalty on the property. Is that right? That's correct. And Even though, you know, I'm no math genius, but <laughs> I am able to multiply one-fourth times one-eighth, one mm -hmm. and that comes out to one-thirty-second, right? 
Correct. And so in my first example, I say I'm reserving one thirty-second of the oil and gas in the property, right? And you're telling me that's not the same as reserving one-fourth of the usual one-eighth royalty on the property, right? That's correct. Under the first example, it would be interpreted as a fixed, so be, you would be entitled to just a one thirty-second. And it's, under the yeah, I'm sorry. Under the ahead. second example, it would be a floating, um, so you would be uh, based on whatever uh, royalty you have under the then existing lease. And so, in that first example, uh, the fixed example, one thirty-second. Does it matter what the lease royalty on the property is? It does not. So I'm going to get that one thirty-second, whether it's a one-fifth lease, one-fourth lease. One eighth lease, one one hundredth lease, right? That's correct. It'll yeah. stay the same. And so I've got I've got just a fixed interest in the production of the oil and gas on the property, right? Yes. For every thirty-two barrels, one of them's mine, right? Yes. So going to that double fraction, that uh, one fourth of the usual one eighth. Now you're saying that 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 floats. You know, what does that mean that it floats? that it varies depending on the size of the lease. So, you know, under your example, if you mm -hmm. had a one-eighth lease at the time the deed was done, you know, you'd have one-fourth of that one-eighth. But if that lease expired and then another uh, new lease was executed, providing for, say, a one-fourth royalty, then you'd be entitled to one-fourth of that one-fourth instead of the one-fourth of one-eighth that you had you know, at the time you did the reservation. And we've had some experience in dealing with these types of cases, is that correct? Yes. And what, you know, can you name a couple of cases uh, in which we've had to, you know, confront these types of issues? The first one we had was Dragon versus Harrell. It was decided mm -hmm. in 2016. And then the second one was Hoffman versus uh, Thompson, which was decided earlier this year. And in both those cases, we had that, that double fraction language, right, that, you know, one-fourth or one-eighth or one-sixth of the usual one-eighth lease. Is that right? Yes. And, you know, what were, what were the courts looking at in those cases? And, you know, did they rely upon any, any legal theories in reaching the decision that these, these reservations were not, you know, a fixed amount of production, but would vary depending upon mm -hmm. what the oil and gas lease that was underlying the property was? Yeah, one of the uh, theories that the court had looked at was the estate misconception theory, um, which is a, a once common misunderstanding that was perpetuated by outdated precedent that a landowner retained only one-eighth of the minerals in place after they executed a lease. And, and that's basically, you know, and, and from what I understand, and, you know, expound on this if you can, but th up until what, like the 70s, 80s, just about every oil and gas lease in the state of Texas was a one-eighth lease. Is that right? Yes. And, you know, that's where, you know, in that, that language, that double fraction language that we were talking about, that usual mm -hmm. one-eighth, that's what they're referring to when they say the usual one-eighth. Is that right? That I, I, I think that it's correct that the one-eighth lease was so prevalent in the state of Texas for such a long period of time that Texas courts were actually taking judicial notice mm -hmm. uh, that, look, you know, we're a one-eighth lease state. And it's, it was that judicial notice that courts are looking into and just kind of the, the prevalence of that one-eighth lease that the courts look into when they're reviewing these double fraction deeds in order to try to, 
trying to figure out what were the parties really intending to do mm -hmm. uh, in this in this circumstance when they they say you know one fourth of the usual one eighth. Why why put in that double fraction, right? Right. You know, because the double fraction just you know if you meant just a fixed share, a one thirty second, then just say the one thirty second, right? And so you know the estate misconception theory really explores that that idea of why the parties intended to put in that usual one-eighth language, right? That's correct. And so, you know, I think you came with a couple of examples of, you know, of an estate misconception issue. Yes, so um, for example, um, a lessor who had leased the entire mineral estate but desired to sell, you know, only one half of the minerals um, would assume after he had signed a lease that he only owned one-eighth of the minerals um, you know, as a result of that existing lease. Mm -hmm. So uh, he would use the fraction one-sixteenth or a double fraction, you know, one-half of one-eighth to convey one-half of what he thought he had owned. And so the misconception in the estate misconception theory is that if I, you know, particularly back in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, back when one-eighth was just the standard, you know, there just wasn't a deviation off of it. If I had leased my property and I had, you know, leased my property to, you know, Conoco or something, it was going to be a one-eighth lease, right? Correct. And so the misconception that people were operating under at that time was that because I had entered into this lease and only reserved for myself a one-eighth interest in the royalty under that lease, the misconception was I only own that one-eighth interest, and so I am just reserving a fraction out of that one-eighth or out of my leased interest, correct? Yes. And so courts, you know, particularly in the last, what do you think, like 10, 15 years or so have really started focusing in on that usual one-eighth language. Courts have really kind of replaced usual one-eighth with just, you know, the lease. The landowner's royalty. Right. Yeah. And so instead of the courts reading the double fraction as a multiplication of, you know, one-fourth or one-fifth times one-eighth, it's really a multiplication of one-fourth or one-fifth of whatever the landowner's royalty is in the lease. Correct. Right. And that's, that's the float, mm -hmm. right? Because that landowner royalty over time could change. You know, you may enter into a lease in 2005 that's for one-fifth. You may enter into a lease in 2015 that's one-fourth, mm -hmm. but if, if you've got a floating royalty, you're going to take a percentage of whatever that lease royalty is, uh, regardless of whether that lease royalty changes, correct? Correct. And so, you know, that's really kind of at the heart of the, uh, of the estate misconception theory. Is that right? Yes. And is it your opinion that courts have kind of changed over the last you know, number of years, I'd say 10 to 15, and the sort of deference they're giving that, that one eight, usual one-eighth language. Yeah, it, it seems like over time the courts have started to give that, you know, a little more weight than what they did in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that the real turning point case, uh, I think most people would agree, would be Luckell, that the courts kind of, after, after the Luckell case, which mm -hmm. I think is what, mid-90s case maybe? I don't know my timelines, but the, uh, the courts really started taking more of a, a holistic approach mm -hmm. to looking at deeds and really trying to discern the intent 
rather than just, you know, this rote reading of a deed and just, you know, simple multiplication. In fact, I think there's some language, might even be in Laquelle, where it says, you know, courts aren't supposed to be just, you know, multiplication tables or calculators to, you know, multiply fractions, but are there to, you know, attempt to look at the document and really you know, discern what the parties were intending to do. And I think the courts in the last, since Laquelle, mm -hmm. have done a much better job of doing that than, than they did prior to Laquelle. And yeah. so you, you, get some, you get some really wild differentiations and opinions between courts that were looking at this double fraction, you know, pre-Laquelle, as opposed to the way courts look at it today. Mm -hmm. You agree with that? I do. Other than, you know, that, that idea that we're working off the estate misconception theory, have courts been able to find any reason why someone would, would use that double fraction language? No, I mean, there's, there's very little explanation for the use of double fractions to express a fixed interest absent a misunderstanding about the grantor's retained ownership or use of one-eighth as a proxy for the customary royalty. Okay. So let's say that, you know, we've got a deed. Um, you know, I granted you a piece of property and, you know, it's got a mineral reservation in it. Um, more than four years of term, more than four years have passed, but you and I can't agree on whether or not this reservation is a floating royalty or a fixed royalty. I, as the reserving party, say, you know, this is floating, you know, I, I know it is. You, on the other hand, are like, no, you got a fixed share of production and that's all you got. How do the parties settle those differences if they can't come to some sort of amicable agreement? Typically, the parties will file a, a declaratory judgment suit, um, which will result in a judicial determination of the rights of the parties. And, and what is a declaratory judgment suit? You know, what, what's, is it a suit that's you know, authorized by statute? Is it something that you know, just exists in the common law? You know, what, what is it? I think we yes. commonly refer to as a deck action. Yes, it's, you know, it's the Declaratory Judgment Act. It's by statute, um, and it allows um, parties to settle and, and get relief regarding uncertainty in language that is used in, in the deed. And so if, if a court or if the parties need for a court to construe or interpret language, the Declaratory Judgment Action, that's the vehicle by which they would normally do it. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Now... Are attorney's fees something that a party could seek if they are either uh, you know, pursuing or defending a declaratory judgment action? Yes, it's available to either side and it's typically awarded to the prevailing party. Okay. It's not mandatory, but the court usually will do that. So I could, I could sue you on a declaratory judgment action. You could win that action and then you could seek your attorney's fees from me. Is that right? That's correct. And so that's something that you know, we always, you know, it's a double-edged sword when we're talking to clients because they come in and they say, you know, I think it's this, my grantee thinks it's that, you know, what do we do? And we, we walk them through the, the deck action statute and then, you know, the, the question always comes up is, can I get my attorney's fees out of this? And the answer is yes, but we always have to warn them now, we need to prevail. Uh, you know, if we don't prevail, there's a zero chance we're getting attorney's fees and there is a substantial chance uh, that the court's going to award fees against us. You know, even if the other side doesn't counterclaim us, uh, just the fact that, you know, if you're defending a deck action or you're prosecuting one, that ability to get your reasonable and necessary attorney's fees 
is available really to the whoever prevails, right? Yes. And so, you know, it it's something that you need to, you know, as a as a party going into this lawsuit, it's certainly great if you win and then you've got to, you know, get your mental interest under your interpretation for free. But uh, but if you lose, you know, not only are you going to lose out the mineral reservation, but, you know, you might get to pay $100,000 in somebody else's lawyers, which clients don't like paying their own lawyers, you know, much less paying someone else's. So it, it's certainly something that before, you know, you go into it, uh, you need to make sure that you understand that if we don't come out on the right side on this, this, this could be, you know, not only us losing, but, uh, you know, having to pay someone else's attorney's fees as well. Right. And so when the court, you know, so in a, in a deck action, in a, in a suit to interpret this document, what's the court going to look at in order to determine the party's intent? Are there like strict rules that the court's going to apply here? Is there, you know, some sort of uh, evidence that the court wants to take in? What, how does the court go about deciding a, uh, a deed interpretation or contract interpretation suit? So the, the first and foremost duty of a court uh, when construing a deed is to ascertain the intent of the parties from all of the language that's used in the deed. Um, this is a fundamental rule of construction that's known as the Four Corners Rule. Uh, so under the Four Corners Rule, the court will attempt to harmonize all of the parts of the deed because the parties intend every, every clause to have some effect and you know, to evidence their agreement. So even if different parts of the deed appear contradictory or, or inconsistent, the court must strive to harmonize all of those parts and you know, construe the instrument to give effect to all of its provisions. So when the court's looking at a deed, are there, you know, we've discussed like several, several clauses, you know, granting clause, reservation clause, uh, property description. Um, do certain clauses have preference or are they given more weight and more authority over other language contained in the deed? No, all of the provisions are, are afforded weight and no provision should have more weight than, you know, so the granting clause shouldn't take priority over the, the you know, reservation or the habendum or any other clause that's in the deed. And are there any clauses that the court can, you know, just either strike out or ignore or just not pay attention to? or is, or is the court supposed to take in all the language? Correct. The, the court has to consider everything and can't strike down any provisions and, and has to give weight to you know, all of the terms. And, and that's because you know, the Supreme Court and the lower courts have, have ruled that, look, if these parties intended for these words to be in this document, we as the party that is construing this document you know, should, should pay attention to that, should, should you know, give deference and weight and meaning mm -hmm and intent to these words because we assume the parties meant every word they said in this document. Otherwise, they wouldn't have used those words, right? That's right. And so, you know, the first thing they're going to look at is what, what does the document say? Mm -hmm. um, is, is the court allowed to go beyond the scope of just the words used in the document in order to try to, try to construe the document, in order to interpret the document? Yeah, the, the court can also consider um, surrounding circumstances, um, but they're limited by the parole evidence rule. And what's the parole evidence rule? It's a, it's a rule that prohibits a party from presenting extrinsic evidence um, for the purpose of creating an ambiguity. Or so, what, you know, for the 
listeners here who don't know what extrinsic evidence is, you know, what is extrinsic evidence? It is evidence that is outside of the document. Okay, so, so stuff outside the four corners of that deed. So, right. you know, the, the courts want to stay inside the document, yes. right? I mean, that that's the goal. Um, but only if absolutely necessary will they go to surrounding circumstances. Now, can those surrounding circumstances just be anything? Are they Are they limited in scope? Or is it just, you know, look, I was talking to Bob the other day and we both believe that I reserved it. So there you go. You know, or is it, or is there just, you know, a certain classification of circumstances and facts the court can, can look into? Yeah, it needs to be, um, you know, facts and circumstances that provide a context and explain the meaning of the words that the, that the parties used in the mm -hmm. deed. It, it can't just be you know, anything random. It needs to be specific to that transaction and it needs to um, you know, assist the court in its interpretation of the language. And, and so that's an important point that the facts and circumstances have to relate to that transaction. So, for example, um, you know, if there are no facts and circumstances that the court could look to, you know, there's not like a contract, there's not emails relating to our agreement that I'm going to sell you Blackacre you know, we're, we've got our fixed versus floating disagreement. Um, but there's no facts and circumstances to this actual transaction. The court would be barred from looking at, you know, like future conveyances that you made to third parties uh, in which you said that, you know, I reserved a fixed interest in the deed from Butler to me, you know, and therefore, you know, I've got a fixed interest. That, that wouldn't be a fact and circumstances surrounding the transaction that the court could look at, right? That's correct. It, it's not you know, related to that transaction. It's done presumably several years later or even a few days later, but it's, it's not related to the underlying you know, transaction that the court is trying to, to you know, rule on. So what happens if the court looks at the four corners of the deed and says, you know, I can't get anywhere with this, and then looks for facts and circumstances surrounding the transaction, and there's nothing there either. You know, what is the, what is the court left with at that point? Well, in that case, the deed um, might be considered ambiguous, um, but if, if it's worded in such a way that the court can provide a definite or certain, you know, legal meaning, then it's, you know, should not be considered ambiguous, and the and court would then be confined to the writing. And so, you know, if a court is faced with an opportunity to either say, you know, ambiguous or not ambiguous, the courts choose uh, unambiguous, right? Correct. They try and, and, you know, find that the deed is not ambiguous before resorting to. And that's because, you know, we, we talked earlier about like the deed records and the public records. And so there's this, there's this chain of title that's recorded and you don't want to just, you know, declare ambiguity whenever, you know, you're having a hard time interpreting it because that's going to disrupt, you know, the, the chain of title and how parties interpret title going down to the eventual owner. Is that right? Right. We want certainty in the deed records and that's what Texas law, you know, tries to do. So what, what does it take in order for a court to find that, you know, this document is ambiguous? What, what's kind of the standard or, or the rule for the court to say, I hereby rule ambiguity? Only after the court applies, you know, the rules of construction and, and still is not able, you know, to determine what the parties meant. It'll take more than, you know, a mere disagreement about the proper interpretation of the deed. 
Um, but, but if they're still not able, you know, after applying the rules of construction and, and looking at the words used, um, the deed is, you know, susceptible to more than one meaning, then, then it would be considered so, ambiguous. So the court's got to find that, look, you know, it's not just that this party says X and this party says Y. Both X and Y have to be reasonable. Correct. You know, it, it can't be, you know, look, X says the sky is blue, Y says the sky is purple. You know, what am I to do here? You know, I mean, it, there's only one reasonable, you know, statement there. You know, it, it would have to be two statements that the court could look at and say, you know, both of these could be true based upon the evidence that's been presented to me, right? Correct. So what does the court do then? You know, if the court's got ambiguity, what does the court do at that time? Then the court will consider parole or extrinsic evidence to try and determine the party's intent. So if the court finds ambiguity, basically, you know, the barn door opens up and, yes. you know, whatever evidence may exist to show the party's intent will be deemed relevant by the court, basically. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So that's not where you want to be if you're a party to a deed because, you know, you don't know what the other side may, you know, try to bring in as evidence at that point, right? Right. So, you know, on the front end, you know, going back to the very beginning, somebody comes into your office and says, I want to sell this property and I want to, you know, either reserve or convey some minerals. You know, what is your advice to them in order to try to reduce the chances that they're ever going to find themselves in the sort of litigation fights that, that we've mentioned here today? That they should, you know, review the documents or have, you know, competent oil and gas counsel review the, the deeds and, and, and you know, make sure that it evidences the party's intent. And one thing I always tell clients is, you know, simple language work. You know, you do not have to overly complicate this process. I think one of the things that has brought us so much business is that a lot of oil and gas attorneys or, or attorneys who didn't practice oil and gas primarily but dip their toe into it every once in a while, they, they tried to make it too complicated mm -hmm. and they tried to outsmart themselves. And, you know, you don't have to prove how smart you are in these deeds. Uh, these can be simple transactions or at least contain, they might be complex transactions, but, you know, real skill is being able to do something complex in a simple manner. And so, you know, what I think you want to find <clears throat> if you're a client is get an attorney, get an oil and gas attorney, real property attorney, who can achieve your ends in simple, clear language that not only you and the party you're dealing with on this transaction will be able to discern, but that future parties, you know, we talked about that next generation, um, that future parties to this property uh, will be able to determine, okay, here's what dad left us, or here's what grandfather owned at the time of his death. Um, you want that certainty to pass down throughout the generations, um, and you want to be able to hire an attorney who can achieve that for you. You agree with that? I do. Okay. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the different types of transactions that mineral owners enter into with oil and gas companies and the kind of legal battles that can ensue from those dealings. I'll be joined next episode by Stephen Ault, 
who's a partner in Langley Benack's oil, gas, and energy section, and has extensive experience in these areas. Thank you for joining us on the Oil and Gas Podcast from Langley Benack, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack Podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com, or call us at 210-736-6600.